Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been about 350 of them now, and if this is new to you, you can go to batgap.com and you'll find them all, uh, all the previous ones, organized and categorized in various ways under the past interviews menu. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you feel like supporting it, there's a donate button on the site there. So thanks. My guest today is Tree Wiseblood. That wasn't her original name, and maybe we'll get into why she, how she ended up with that name. She's in Australia, out in the boondocks outside, or the outback as they call it, somewhere near Sydney. She's on 17 acres of land. She said she was watching wallabies and kangaroos jumping around this morning. And in fact, it is morning for her right now. It's about 8 o'clock in the morning there, 5 o'clock for me. I read her book, uh, which um, Hot Flush Dark Cave is the title of it, and it's in essence about menopause as a spiritual phase of life, a spiritual opportunity, but there's all kinds of very interesting things in it that ha happened to her during that phase. But first, before we get into any of that, I would like to read her bio. The spiritual journey does not consist in gaining what a person does not have, but in dissipation of ignorance concerning himself and life, and the growth of understanding which begins with spiritual awakening. To find God is to come to, to one's own self, and that's from Avatar Meher Baba, of whom Tree has been a devotee for many decades. And it's kind of interesting because after we scheduled her interview, someone emailed and said, hey, how come you've never interviewed anybody who knows anything about Mayor Baba. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we've got somebody scheduled. Going on with her bio, this is in her words, no longer the person with its conditioning and history, here now there is only this, and the overall feeling is, I don't mind. No fear, no push, a great emptiness that is also a rich and all-pervading fullness. Here there is silence, peace, and an exquisite sense of joy. Here it feels so light, there is no distance marinating in the self. It is as if nothing is happening and yet happening graciously unfolds. Yet here happening graciously unfolds. To look back at the dream, the necessary mistaken identity, it seemed like so much happened. Personhood was such psychological suffering, separation, a feverish, fearful struggle, always restless, dissatisfied, looking outside for love and fulfillment. Now peace and love reside here. I have spent 30 years with Avatar Meher Baba in deep devotion. Baba has administered his kiss and his kick, expertly unraveling the ego identity, longing for the truth, and with nothing more to express in this life, I knew I was going to die. Not sure if it was the body or the ego, I completely surrendered. Shortly after, whilst watching Muji on the net, he pointed and I said with total conviction, I am that. In that recognition, I hysterically and uncontrollably laughed for hours. When I could hardly breathe from the laughter, and I asked God to help me, the laughter only escalated. And yeah, thanks, God. Um, <laughs> the funniest thing, the divine joke, was that I knew I had always been that. I love Mayor Baba and Muji, the brightest reflections of the true self I know. It's quiet here as I experience the bliss and love of the self. That's Tree's bio. As you can tell, she's a good writer. So welcome. Thanks for doing this. Hi, Rick. 
And <laughs> Tree is one of those people whom you wouldn't have heard of ordinarily. She's not out there as a spiritual teacher, not, you know, kind of like on the satsang scene or anything like that. She she happened to email Irene about something, and Irene's curiosity was piqued, and they emailed back and forth a, a little bit, and Irene suggested that, you know, maybe she would be a good person to interview because her experiences seemed to be rather profound. And um, so one thing led to the next, and here we are. <clears throat> so maybe we should start out at least by going a little bit chronologically. That all seems to work. Mm-hmm. Then we'll see where else we end up. Was Mayor Baba the first significant thing that we want to talk about? Or are you one of these people who even as a little girl had... Oh yeah, there was something I read where you were just nine years old or something and you went outside and you just cried out to God or something. Is this all there is? You know, is that, tell, us, <laughs> tell us that story. Yeah, I did that. I was living in like a brick house and with the television continually going. And I don't know, the electric lights happening and the family and something felt bizarre and not quite right. And like empty, but not a beautiful emptiness, just an empty. And so I did go out and cry and implore to the night sky, to God. This isn't it, is it? You know, and... um, I received a really beautiful hug, like a divine hug. And I got told, no, this isn't it. Just wait, just wait, you know. And so I continued on. And you were just a little kid, right? Eight or nine years old at that time? Yeah, I think I was about nine, yeah. yeah. That kind of thing happens fairly often. and I, I mean, you know, not every day, but I find it interesting. I've heard a lot of stories where people Im- sort of implore whatever is their whatever they're speaking to maybe they don't know and it answers it gets some kind of response you know from my experience if you implore with all your heart you'll be answered yeah it's an interesting uh, thing i mean it perhaps you would like to elaborate on the reasons for that i could give you some but you're the person that's being interviewed here so so how how is it that the universe is so sentient that you know we can implore like that and get a response i think because we're well i i don't really know but i can just waffle out what's coming through here mm-hmm. i think because we're put on this planet to realize who we are so each and every soul god has the time and space for each and every soul you know yeah to that finite being you you know your soul your soul just I don't know, you'd cry out from all your heart, but all your heart, and you'll be answered. That's just my experience, yeah. Yeah, and to some people, even to say that there is a God who could respond is a leap of faith, you know, something they don't believe in. But in reading your story, your your orientation is that the universe is very intelligent, very alive, and very responsive to our, to our needs, or, or we could say maybe more concerned with our growth. Maybe a better way yeah. of doing it. Yeah. 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 I feel like uh, everything's here to administer to, to us to find who we are. Yeah. yeah. So, what happened between age nine and <laughs> yeah, this crazy teenage years? And even before then, I uh, 
can remember going, my parents weren't at all religious, so God for me isn't it, you know, it can be a bit of a dirty word in some circles because of that people have had bad experience with religion. So we were, my sister and brother and I were sent to church of a Sunday morning, not because my parents were religious, but because they wanted to sleep in. <laughs> so, so we would go along to church and I, I was the youngest and I went to Sunday school and there were these beautiful hippies in uh, Sunday school, a man and a woman, and they were sort of deeply in love and deeply in love with Jesus. So this was my first experience. And um, I can remember seeing a beautiful light, you know, surrounding them as they sang to Jesus. So I really, I loved that. And then when we came to an age where you had to go to the church, you were older and you came up and we had to go into the church and I can remember really loving the the religious art and the windows but the energy of the people it didn't it didn't work for me yeah so I went probably boring yeah yeah and just it was the energy like the energy that young people had and the love was there but in the church it was mm, not not it didn't feel good (laughs) yeah so I uh, went home and said, that's it, I'm retiring from that. And um, my parents were fine because uh, they weren't religious. And then I went from that to, to the starry sky, to nature, to the mountains, the rivers, the trees, just nature. And I always felt presence like a, as a kid I felt a presence behind me often and sometimes I felt that presence coming through me yeah I was just skimming my notes here there's so many I mean your whole book is so nature oriented you're always kind of you basically lived in a cabin or something for three years and you're always sitting out in the woods and under the sky and climbing mountains and just really nature was like your religion in a way out there yeah very much so yeah yeah i sort of see now um like avatar Meababa, and muji and nature just perfection like perfect reflections of the self yeah hmm. i guess uh well this is a bit of a theoretical question but can a human being ever be as perfect a reflection of the self as you know nature itself i mean we're part of nature but it almost seems like we've alienated ourselves from it to some extent to one degree or another and an avatar of course is supposed to be an incarnation of god who didn't come into this life in ignorance but muji would readily admit to having done so and and most spiritual (laughs) most spiritual teachers we know about Mm -hmm. so well i think at our at our core well Baba, yes, and all of us at our source, you know, not, yeah, yeah, yes, but, you know, our mistaken identity, not so much, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an important distinction because a lot of people, they say, well, we're all already enlightened, and yeah, true, in ultimately, in our essence, Mm -hmm. but if you apply that to all 7 billion people in the world, then that's not so obvious with some people as with others. And so it renders the whole term enlightenment meaningless. And 
you know, we, we really should aspire to some more ideal reflection of that essence, you know, than is ordinarily the case in, in, in most people's lives. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> if, if I make a statement like that, you don't necessarily have to agree with it. You can always say, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I'll say things that aren't questions. They're just like statements and, you know, feel free to discuss or disagree or whatever. So how did you find Mayor Baba? I always had this belief in universal source, God, as I say, this presence behind me and it's sometimes coming through me. And I'd just gotten married, it would have been 33 years ago, and my husband was a dancer and he was doing a dance show. And he discovered Mayor Baba in Sydney looking through a book of photos. And by the time he finished the book of photos, he was crying with recognition that mm. this is God, this is God, yeah. Mm. And my husband was a big spiritual seeker, and he felt when he married me, it was a failure to his seeking. He thought he should be a monk or something? Yeah, yeah. He was sort of drawn to that and then drawn to me. And yeah, so he felt a lot of failure around that initially. And then he started to read about Baba and he said, I'll read this stuff about marriage. You know, Mayor Baba talks about marriage that, yeah, in an ide ideally celibacy and that life is a way to go and that's the ideal. But if, if you're not at that state, it's ridiculous. You're banging your head against a wall to try and, you know, be celibate. So marriage is the next best thing because you go through hell and back almost in marriage. Well, that's been our experience. <laughs> you know, you go through the hard times, the good times. And it's just a, like it's a really great thing for ripping apart the ego, you know, shred by shred, really. And I think that's Mayor Barber's, um, the way he works, yeah. Yeah. I spent yeah. about 15 years on the monastic program in the, in the TM movement, and I had the same sort of hang-up your husband did. And, um, you know, there was a bit of an adjustment getting married. But I would agree with what you just said is it's like having your own private guru in a way. <laughs> you, know, the, the, you know, because, I mean, there's a, you know, hanging out with the guys in the monastic setting, people could get very idiosyncratic, very carried away, very obsessive. And there were really no checks and balances that much and it didn't have so, so some people were having good experiences and all but in many cases there was a great lack of integration and groundedness and so on and since then you know a great many of the guys who I was with left that program and, and you know ended up getting married some of them in, in their 60s you know because they finally yeah. realized well this is really not you know cut yeah. out for you know yeah I think it's for some you know I think it's for some and and uh, what a wonderful thing. But for us, it was marriage and we had a lot of work to do, you know, and a lot of um, reflecting yeah. of each other. And there have yeah. been a lot of great saints. I mean, wasn't Yogananda's master a, a householder? Lahiri okay. Mahasaya or Lahasaya or whatever his name was and, and many others. I mean, if you look at the tradition of, of teachers in many traditions, I mean, some of them, everyone is married, like the, the, the Jewish tradition, but even in the Vedic. Uh, there are a great many masters and the whole lineage that uh, were married and had children and passed on the lineage to their sons and so on. Yeah, yeah. 
So the story then goes that, it's hard to remember this, the story then goes that he fell in love with Baba and sent me the teachings on marriage and I went, oh yeah, this is true, this is, this is great, this is truth. And then he was overseas in London dancing and he said, I'm going to go and visit Mayor Baba. And I just got this really strong, I didn't really even know who he was, I just got this strong push inside, I'm coming, you know. And he said, no, I'm going to fly somewhere, I don't know where it was, on the way home and then go to India. So it's too hard to come back to Australia and then go. And I said, oh, okay. So I just sort of let it go. And he couldn't get a visa to fly that way. So he had to come back to Australia. And um, it was almost like Baba wanted both of us. So within weeks, we were both in India at Baba's tomb. Yeah, I mean, you speak of Baba as if he had been alive, but of course he wasn't at that point. So you're talking about going to his tomb. And if he's not alive, why would it matter if you went to his tomb or just uh, connected with him in Australia? Okay, good question. In a way, like he is so alive and he is everywhere, and so I can experience him equally here but it was just a really strong longing to go to go to his place yeah i really felt called to go yeah yeah and i remember reading in your notes that you, you got your head stuck to his tomb or something like that <laughs> i wasn't sure what you meant by that <laughs> okay yeah it was was quite bizarre when i first went into baba's tomb i was sort of quite naive. I didn't know anything about gurus. It had only been universal source and nature. A little bit of a warmth towards Jesus, but I just turned up and I walked in very naively and said, hi, Baba. Uh, my name was Michelle. It's Michelle. I'm here. I'm from Fitzroy. I'm here. And when I, oh, sorry, Rick, when I heard, when I said that, I just um, said, I just felt overwhelming love, you know, and I said, and I love you. And um, in the tomb, it, the, the feeling is, it's just so alive and so beautiful and divine. It's a very special place. And um, I came out of the tomb, I took Darshan, came out of the tomb and like was gobsmacked I couldn't speak for days just couldn't physically speak and there were a lot of a lot of Americans into Mayor Baba and they were sort of going around oh you know it was a bit like oh the little Aussie ladies she must be mute you know because <laughs> I couldn't utter a word then neither I, did he for 30 something years right yeah I think 44 but 44. I'm no good at figures. You'd have to look that up, Rick. But yeah, Barb had kept silence. And of course, here am I talking today, but it's uh, anniversary of Barb's silence today. Yeah. Many people say, some people say that, you know, there was one famous, uh, who was it? I forget who said it, but he said, dead gurus don't kick ass. You know, in other words, you know, if you don't have a live teacher with whom you can interact, you can kind of get away with anything, you know, because who's to who's to say who, that what you're whether what you're doing or 
is legitimate or not, or useful, or whether you're off the track, or this or that. But in those notes that I just read, you know, you, you said there was both the kiss and the kick. So, mm, definitely. Um, so, so somehow or other, he kept you on track, even though he wasn't in the body. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just very alive, very uh, here, and yeah, orchestrating the whole show, and yeah, just even in dialogue, like, you, if you sit still long enough, or it's not that I sit, but I walk in nature, I do sit in nature, and listen, you know, uh, he is alive, and and conveys messages and, and talks very clearly, very clearly, and arranges situations, and yeah. Now, how do you know that it's Baba doing that, not just sort of the divine intelligence, which is omnipresent anyway? Um, sort of same, same, but a little bit more personified in that you feel his presence yeah. and he smells like a rose and you feel him in you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind it's of, a bit hard to describe, Rick, but yeah. Well, it's He's not so unusual, really. I mean, there are millions yeah. of Christians and, and Muslims and so on who are devoted to Jesus and Muhammad and, mm. and you mm. know, probably other examples who, um, you know, could very much relate to what you're saying in terms of their mm. own ch chosen, um, you know, path of devotion. Back in the in Baba's tomb, we only stayed for two weeks, and it was a honeymoon. It was an absolute honeymoon with uh, Baba. And at one time, it was Women's Day, and he's very close women disciples. In those days, there weren't many people. In the 80s, there weren't many people there. So all his uh, mandalai was alive. His most beloved woman friend, Mera, was alive, and his sister... And all the women Mandalay and men Mandalay were there. And, uh, well, I came to Baba's tomb on Women's Day and uh, it was very beautiful being in the tomb with his beloved talking and, and um, sending love towards Baba. That was the most magnificent experience to see that absolute devotion. Mm -hmm. And on coming out from there, this is getting to the head stuck bit, Rick. I'm trying to keep on track. Coming out of the tomb, you know, you pay your respects, you bow down at the master's feet. So you put your head on the tomb and, and send your love. And I put my head down on the tomb and my head literally got stuck to the tomb. It sounds bizarre. And I'm getting a bit panicky and uh, trying to pull up. And there's all people waiting, so it was quite embarrassing, you know. Um, they're all waiting in line, you know, and this Aussie woman's hogging the tomb, you know, she won't get up. But I, I tried and I tried and I just could not lift my head. And in the end, I just surrendered, thought, oh, well, it's Barbara's tomb, he wants my head stuck here, I'll just, I'll just wait it out. And so I just waited and waited and, um, and then tried again. And then, you know, after about five minutes, I could get my head off the tomb and I came out and I did have a very strange sort of V from sucking onto the tomb on my forehead and then I walked out and one of the women Mandalay said you take the flowers into Baba's tomb 
And I went, oh, God, I don't know if I want to go back in again because, you know, the protocol is to put your head down again. So I took the flowers in and I took darshan again and the same thing happened again Hmm. twice in a row. I don't know what that was about. but Do you think you just went into such a deep state that you really just couldn't get up? No, because I was totally present and in my body and aware and I wasn't really at a level of getting into any deep states. Yeah, um, you weren't immobilized. I just, and, yeah. I just physically couldn't lift my head off, like it was suctioned on. Did you ever figure that out, or still to this day uh, it seems like a mystery? You know, Baba talks about taking your sanskaras. You know, if you put your head at the master's feet, they absorb your sanskaras. So maybe I just had a hell of a lot to, yeah. <laughs> to absorb, yeah. I was just reading something about Ramana Maharshi talking about that very same thing about how he, he he would really be taking on a lot of the samskaras or the vasanas or the karma of disciples and and he said he had to flush it out every day by sitting in samadhi for a certain period of time otherwise mm-hmm. it would accumulate but after a certain period he stopped doing that and then he, he started aging more quickly and he ended up getting cancer and um when he was suffering quite a bit with the cancer, somebody, one of his devotees said to him, why don't you just take all of your suffering and apportion it among us? You know, we'll gladly take a share and then you won't be suffering. And he said, where do you think I got it from in the first place? (laughs) 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 But I would suppose maybe that if one is no longer incarnate, perhaps there can be a a much greater absorption of, of karma without it taking a personal toll because there's no body for oh. it to take a toll on, maybe. Maybe. If you look at the films of Baba taking Dash and, you know, you can see him as, you know, thousands of people pass. I don't know if you've seen any films of Mayor Baba, Rick. No. But, yeah, you can see him. And, yeah, it feels like the body's really suffering. Oh. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it, what was, you know, I don't know, but mm. it appears that he's taking the suffering, yeah. Could be, yeah. All right, so you were with Baba, or you still, I would say, you still are for, you know, it's been 30-something years of feeling that connection, that devotion, and so on. And um, I guess for most of that time, it was pretty exclusive, right? And, yeah. Um, but, you know, then more recently, you've branched out a little bit, so to speak. Yeah. I have branched out. A friend of mine, Amanda, came and she had some beautiful uh, DVDs of Muji. And um, uh, we sat and watched together. And she'd been to Rishikesh to see Muji many times. And uh, she said, I think you'll like this beautiful being. And we sat and watched. And, um, yeah, like same, same thing, like just total recognition total recognition of the self in Muji, like what a what a beautiful being and so prolific and generous and powerful. Yeah. And then we're not, uh, I mean, we still have plenty of stuff to talk about, but just to sort of <laughs> get to the punchline. So you were, you were watching Muji one day and, um, you know, well, I read that in your bio also. There was just some major awakening that took place. Yeah, before I uh, 
Just a little bit before I went on tour with my husband, he drives trucks now, and we were go I was going to go join him on tour, and I've never done this before. But before I was going to go, I was walking up and down in our house, and I just felt like, oh, it's over, it's finished. I didn't have anything else more I wanted to express or do. It was like, oh, there's in nothing. In life, you mean? In life, there's yeah. nothing left to do, like... There's nothing left. And I thought, oh, God, maybe I'm dying. I got a real sense of I think I'm going to die. And so my sister and I are really close. And so I rang my sister and I said, hey, I think I'm going to die, you know. And, and, she, and she's like, oh, don't you dare because we, my brother has died. And she's like, don't, we always say, don't you dare because I'll be left, you know. And I said, something's dying. I don't know if it's the ego or me, but it's over. And I hung up from that phone call and I just got this incredibly desperate longing of, um, oh, I can't do it anymore, Baba. Like, so over, so over the person, just, I don't want to do it anymore. And like this is in sobs and throwing myself on the floor, a bit of a tanty. <laughs> Baba, you do it. You do it. And so from there, I packed my bags and went on tour. And I had lots of time and my husband's got a little uh, laptop. And so I was just devouring Muji when he was out doing his work. You know, Muji's such a beautiful, warm, giving being and and so knowledgeable and so easy to understand. Like I, with Barbara's writings in the past, I didn't understand them. I couldn't understand them. I only ever like naively devoted and loved Barbara. But when Muji spoke and pointed, I found it easier to understand. And one day, one night, my husband and I were both watching one and he's not into Muji, by the way, but he was sitting watching with me, luckily. And uh, Muji pointed and... And uh, I understood, I understood that... that I was that, and... And... Um, just started to laugh and laughed hysterically for hours and the joke was that I had I knew that I'd always been that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about that now and it, it stirs up so much emotion in you why do you feel that it does it's just that the self seems to bubble continuously with this blissful bliss. There's just bliss that bubbles and bubbles and bubbles out, yeah. All the time? It's there all the time. Sometimes it's underlying and I'm active and doing things, but bottom line is there's that bliss. And sometimes, uh, like, it is joy, but it's also sort of excruciating, like, it's almost like a, an excruciating sort of, it's not painful, but there's this, just this heart and bliss, yeah, yeah, that comes out, so sometimes it sort of gets 
you, you look sad and you <laughs> you get a bit teary, but you're not actually sad. Oh, I know yeah. you're not sad. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it's a moving experience. Yeah. Some traditions say that once self-realization has happened, then the development of the heart can proceed much more significantly than it ever could before. And the analogy used is that, you know, if a small pond tries to rise up in big waves, it just can't do it, or it, it stirs the mud up at the bottom in the attempt to do it, whereas an ocean can rise up in great big waves without stirring up the mud. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea is that once the self has been realized, then it provides a platform, sort of, for the heart to really start to blossom much more than it ever has. And um, appreciation can grow more and more and more profoundly because the appreciator has been known, you know. I mean, if you don't know who you are, how can you really properly evaluate or appreciate anything else? But once you know who you are, then you can really start to appreciate creation. So you feel like something like that might be in process with you? Uh, definitely. Everything is... Um like even washing the dishes is a joy. Like as person, you know, I, I remember I would martyr and I'm washing the dishes and it was a whole story and, you know, always fights over the dishes and psychological sagas and drama and, you know, just, ah. <laughs> and now it's just washing the dishes. You, you know, the bubbles in the water look beautiful and the cups shining and, yeah. Yeah, that's a nice little <laughs> illustration of the point. Yeah. And do you feel like it, it's a, something that actually continues to become more and more profound as time goes on? Like the bubbles are even more beautiful this year than they were last year or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is all like only a year ago this happened. Mm. So I feel like I'm just integrating yeah. now and becoming functional actually. So. The last year, everything has been just really like a visual. Visually, it was uh, too much, and I was reading in Barber. Now I can read Barber and understand him, which is great because I never could before. I was reading in Barber the other day. He says, "When you see the self, it's such a shock. Like it's it's so such a big shock that." Um, you can think it's over, like the whole thing is over, but it's not. But it is a big, it's still a big, an enormous shift yeah. in consciousness. And uh, I must admit, I was, I've been out to it like pretty well totally for eight months, you know, just adjusting to uh, particularly the vision, like the vision of everything is so clear visually clear that it's it's sort of that gobsmacking thing where you uh i don't know if that's an australian saying but uh it's british also is it okay yeah, yeah. blown out of the water really and it's sort of so empty here that you're sort of everything you're everywhere so I realized the other a few things like the other day my husband said oh look at the mountain you know like separately looking at the mountain and I, I got where he was coming from but I couldn't look at the mountain do you know what I'm saying yeah, yeah. 
there's no distance between me and the mountain. Yeah. I don't know if that describes it, but no, it helps. Uh, it does. Yeah, yeah. That thing about the clarity too, you know that saying from the Bible about seeing through a glass darkly and then eventually it's gonna be clear. It's it's as if we have kind of dark, foggy glasses on or something. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the glasses somehow become clear and, oh, everything is so, you know, we're no mm-hmm. longer shrouded by that, that sort of distortion and dullness that characterizes most people's experience to, to some extent, usually even without their even knowing it, you know, because they don't know what's possible. Yeah, 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 I didn't uh, realize life would be like this, yeah, yeah. Or another funny one for me was when I saw, I was like staring at a McDonald's sign, you know, the McDonald's thing? Golden arches. And I, yeah, whatever they are. And, you know, just looking at it and just enjoying it. And, you know, a person would never have enjoyed a McDonald's sign. There would be a whole political story around it and, you know, a whole judgment happening. And, uh, yeah, I just find my head spins around and just, there's no judgment. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, said that after her awakening, she used to just sometimes sit and stare at a rock or something, you know, and it's just like in utter fascination. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was at a um, cafe with my daughter in Sydney, in a city, in the city, and I was just—you just get drawn into the detail and the beauty and the texture. And a woman had this beautiful, wavy hair, and I was just staring. And my daughter said, "Mom, you're in the city. You can't just sit there staring. You know, <laughs> it's not right." And I like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so getting used to that visual has taken a long time to integrate. I think. And yeah. I think it's an ongoing process. And, you know, there's a story. Um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to tell this story. Uh, he was my teacher for many years. But he, he said that, you know, he's, he talked about this principle that we're discussing where once the self is realized, then the ability to really appreciate the objects of perception dawns for the, significantly for the first time and continues to grow. And as it continues to grow, it's like the appreciation becomes more profound and more profound. And he said it was like, it's like if there was an artist and he was painting these paintings and he heard that there was some guy in some town, some person who really appreciated his art, where very few people did. But this person, he, kept, he keeps hearing, this guy really gets me. He really understands, really appreciates my art. Eventually, the artist would want to go meet that person and, and he would come to the, the person to, to introduce himself. So Marge used that example to say that once the appreciation of God's creation reaches a, a profound enough degree, God himself will reveal himself to us because he has found in us someone capable of really appreciating his, his creation. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So I read your book. What was it? Remind me of the title. It was Hot Flush, Flush Dark Flush. Cave. Thank you, yes. 
Yes. Oh, actually, there's one more little thing before we get into your book, which is kind of along the same lines as what we were talking about. It was kind of amusing. You said you were watching one of my recent interviews, and towards the end I said, oh, and I'm going to be interviewing this woman in Australia. And you said you felt like kind of a shock because, yeah. you know, your identity is more vast than that now. And, and all of a sudden I kind of narrowed you down to woman in mm. Australia, you know, whereas yeah. ordinarily you're kind of more, <laughs> have a more universal existence. Yeah, I did feel a jolt in the body. It was like, oh, 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 he thinks I'm a woman. He, yeah, yeah and he I, thinks I'm a woman. And I'm in Australia, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. That is, I hope people get the significance of that because it, it, is, it is significant, you know. Um, I mean, we're so much more than our physical appearance. Yeah. 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 And even our location or anything else, I mean... How can the ocean be squeezed into a drop? Got that out of the way. So, uh, <laughs> so let's talk about this book. It was it was quite a ride, and um, and it might. I mean, if we really got into you and I talked yesterday because I called up and I, I, I was reading the book and I was thinking, you know, how are we going to handle this? Because there's so much amazing far out stuff in the book, and you know, many people are going to just disconnect if we start really getting into all the details because unless you you really kind of tune in and appreciate your sincerity and so on it it may seem that you you're just kind of crazy or were kind of crazy when you wrote the book but i don't think you're crazy you know and i think that you you know you were kind of going through a phase maybe maybe that phase is over but you were going through a phase where you were just really tuned into we could call it the spirit world or the subtle realms or, or something. And it was part of your rite of passage or something that you know accompanied menopause. So let's kind of proceed sensitively and um, let's talk about some of the things that you talked about and maybe we can put this in a, in a way that will help people relate to it and derive benefit from the discussion. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'll help you by reading a few notes that I jotted down, that I took from your book as I was reading it. And, you know, you can add other things and respond to the, the notes that I read. But um, here's something. You, you received this message. I don't remember from where, but you can tell us. But it is because you are vibrating at the same frequency, you are a conduit for cosmic energy to Earth, something in regard to helping shift the Earth's energy. There's also a balancing of male-female energy you will receive spiritual gifts, releasing them in each other. So it was like you were going through this whole process where you were being sort of shepherded along or, or worked with, worked on by these various entities, which we can refer to as we go along. But they were like putting you through this initiation period, so to speak, you know, preparing mm -hmm. you, really putting you through the ringer in a way and uh, helping you purify in various ways and so on, all with, kind of all with the sense that you have a role to play and now you have to go through this kind of purgatory in order to um, be capable of, of fulfilling that role. Is that a fair, fair assessment of, of what? Um, I don't know about the purgatory bit, but it was a very rough ride. Like, uh, I did feel like... The menopause at the time was a portal for me to go in and down mm -hmm. and uh, dive down. Actually, 
there was that deep feeling and yet at the same time it started off as just a um, restorative. It was sort of like, you know how the householder, it's over, my kids had left. Uh, it was a, a period in time that I could just have a look, just have a deep look. Right. And I, it, it ended up being three years, you know. And you went off and lived in some cabin or something? Yeah, I, we've owned this property for many years. We sort of brought the kids up in a tin shed here on the property. And uh, we've since built a house when the family's grown up and left home. But uh, <laughs> I uh, got an intuition to go. I wanted time to myself. And uh, we were living in Melbourne and kids went to uni and my husband had a job and I just thought, I'm going to the tin shed. I called it my cave, but it was a tin shed. Okay. And yeah, I received uh, in the stillness and the quiet because it was very quiet. You know, no television, no internet at the time. Just lots of listening, lots of listening. And, and then, yeah, there was seeing into subtle realms and, and a I feel like a refining process and a clearing out and a healing of the person, yeah. Yeah. And it seems like you're going through a lot of past life stuff in, in, in this process of refining and healing. And a lot of old Native American things you went through and stuff about, I mean, here's two men, a torturer and a victim, but it is the perpetrator who needs the light to help lift them out of their state. Um, you know, you were kind of just, seems to me, working out some horrendous stuff. I mean, there was one scene where you were apparently part of a Native American tribe, and um, you had gone down to the river with your horse, and while you were down there, soldiers came through and massacred the whole tribe, but you escaped the massacre because you happened to have gone down to the river, and you, you know, you're feeling kind of great remorse about that and guilt for having been away from, you know, having escaped the fate of everyone else. Um, so, I mean, there are all sorts of specific instances, but um, perhaps we can talk about, I mean, some people don't even believe in past lives and, you know, mm. they, they bring that up in interviews or they bring it up in response to interviews, you know, commenters, and you know, because they just sort of jump to the conclusion that if there's no person ultimately if we are not ultimately a person then you know how could there be like you know reincarnation because that implies there must be a person in order to reincarnate so it's mm. kind of a, it's kind mm. of a conundrum or a paradox mm. Um, mm. so maybe to, to frame this into a question maybe you could comment on you know that whole principle of of past experiences and the, the necessity to work them out you know resolve them purge them and um, and if there is no self ultimately how is it that we have apparently played all these roles in successive births mm. okay uh, I suppose there's a person until there's not you know and there's a soul's evolution this is only my this is only my experience I have experienced I am aware of or have been as a kid aware of quite a few past lives. And uh, when I went into the cave, I thought I just had to work through 
this person's life, you know, and, and get a few wounds out and clear it up and clean it up and, and just sort of move forward, you know, on the spiritual path. But it happened that uh, the soul was carrying guilt from a past life and uh, this past life being did keep surfacing in me and I could feel it and I would strut and walk and I, I was a male American Indian in one past life and as a kid I always had this reoccurring dream that you mentioned of uh, coming out early morning, flipping up the teepee flap, riding a horse to the river and, and I'd wash my face in the river it was just a really strong, reoccurring dream. And uh, the dream would always stop there. And I, I didn't really think much about it, but uh, when I was doing the menopausal three years, this this warrior would appear within, within this being, and I, I felt like him. And he had a bone chest plate, and he was a really strong young beautiful warrior i don't know i don't know what you make of that but that's that was my experience and um yeah i thought i'd just have to clear this but i also had to clear the guilt that he was carrying a big guilt yeah and i did re-experience a scene of that and a whole lot of people gathered and But yeah, I was relieved of my guilt and great love was given. So, you know, there's, it's like now there is this and that doesn't exist, but it did, you know, it did exist for me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I would say that there is this because you worked through that. I mean, you know, you went through a lot of things. We'll talk about more of them where various deep, deep impressions were removed in the form of daggers, actually, which we can talk about, but they were removed, and with each removal there was a, a new degree of freedom, a new sort of, you know, lighter burden, so to speak, and, and I, I would regard all that as very significant to the, the liberation that you eventually experienced with, with Muji. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some people think that little kids come in as tabla rasas, you know, that they're enlightened, they don't have any baggage, whatever, they're totally innocent, and then they get, you know, corrupted as, as time goes on. But according to the whole reincarnation way of thinking, we come in with plenty, yeah. of, plenty of baggage, which is why we come yeah. in. We, we bring yeah. a bucket of it with us, <laughs> <laughs> and we bring a bucket of it with us, you know, from yeah. God knows where and when, and, uh, you know, it has to be worked through. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not enough to say intellectually, oh, I'm already enlightened, you know, because it's, it's, that's like writing sugar on a piece of paper and expecting it to be sweet, you know. It's, it's not the actual thing. It's, 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 not, yeah. it's not the actual experience. Definitely, yeah. It, that is, I feel, felt here. I am, this is felt here, yeah. Yeah. In other words, it's a living experience. Yeah. Because I wasn't an intellectual person, so I, you know, if you needed to be intellectual to get it, <laughs> it you, you, were, you were sunk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And do you find now, in talking to various people, like your husband or your kids or your friends or anybody else, do you feel like it's sufficient to say to them, "Hey, there's only this. You're, it's only that. You know, you're you're you are that, and so on." Or do you feel like that would not really be a tremendously useful instruction for most people? That there's some some kind of pro. And I don't mean to be, you know, just sort of. I mean, some people accuse me of just promoting my particular little agenda, but this is just my understanding of things, and if if and I'm open to changing it, but I. I I kind of see some people speaking this way, and I just wonder how helpful it is. And, and you know, I think we really want to be helpful. Mm, I, I do mm. at least. I, you know, I want yeah. to somehow make this whole thing useful for people's evolution, yeah. not, not just sort of an intellectual okay. exercise. I think probably uh, when Muji says that, uh, he carries a whole... There's an energy with it or something. Yes, thank you, Rick. Yeah. yeah. You read my hands. There's yeah. an energy with it. And with Baba and there's work that they're putting through. And I think if, uh, you know, people are at that point to hear that, then that's great. Um, it wouldn't go down so well with my kids, you know, uh, and yet they're aware of all this stuff and they're more aware than they probably let on. They often say funny things like, Oh, my person's really pissed off about this today. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're um, getting awareness. But I, I don't feel it's my role to teach anyone anything. And I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's something significant in what you just said, which is that there are two components there. You know, there's the, the teacher who is transmitting or, or, or uh, some sort of energy. And then there's the student or the recipient. And both have to be sort of in the right condition. I mean, any old character can't just sort of come, you know, get in front of an audience and say, you're that. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. going to have the, the desired potency. Mm-hmm. And, and the recipients, you know, as Christ talked about throwing pearls before swine and all, um, there, there are going to be different degrees of um, receptivity and ability to mm. actually receive anything from even the most enlightened being that ever existed. Uh, uh, yeah. his, his efforts may fall on deaf ears if he just, if he just took a random crowd. In yeah, fact, I such, think people, so. such people have often been persecuted and killed by random crowds yeah. who <laughs> couldn't appreciate what they <laughs> were saying. Like the message, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I think you could possibly just, like without words, just stare into Mayor Baba's photo or stare into Muji on the, the net and, and I think it could almost be that simple really. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, although the teachings are also useful but just when you, you can see in the creatures or in the eyes of someone if they're silent, you can just, you can just feel and see the self, yeah. Yeah, and that's how some teachers give darshan, just through through a look. Yeah. <clears throat> Ramana did, yeah, well, did that a lot. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I had a, uh, a few months ago a vision. I've, I'm, I'm sort of into the mountains and I've had a house cow and milk, so I'm sort of uh, got a bit of a connection there, just a small connection. But I had a vision of Ramana the other evening, oh, months ago, 
time's not great. And he walked past me with with a calf and, yeah, he just looked into my eyes and, yeah, the look, it's the eyes, yeah. <laughs> Do you know much about Ramana? Not a great deal, no. Did you know no. that one of, one of his primary devotees was a cow? I did watch something recently and, yeah, yeah and I thought, ah. Lakshmi, yeah, maybe. Lakshmi the cow, yeah. And I, I'm always looking at the mountains around here and just, mm. yeah, I go, go to the mountains. So, yeah, there's a little connection there. But, um, yeah, his eyes were just so burning and beautiful, just divine. Yeah. Tell us more about this whole phase of your life, living in the, in the shed, in the cave. You know, tell, tell us some of the more significant things you went through and, you know, what you f why you feel they're significant. Okay. There was a lot of uh, input from the spirit world. And for me, that was significant because I really feel like spirit world does try to help us. Like it's almost their job to help us on the path. What is spirit world exactly in this way you're using the phrase? Okay. I had, in particular, two spirit guides come to me and guide me, give me guidance. One was a buffalo man and the other was an eagle man or something? Well, yeah, and um, uh, the buffalo man sort of taught me his craft, which was, which was hands-on healing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the eagle spirit man was just there he was just full of light and guidance you know i sort of i was a bit nervy and said to barbara what you know is this okay is this okay and he's like mm, they work for me you know they work for me he said that yeah you yeah know, that's what oh, i got in other words they were his henchmen so to speak they were his yeah like his yeah. assistants yeah I, the spiritual realm does i see works for him so I felt that it was all okay, and I feel like uh, other beings uh, oh, just sort of helped in the purification and, and the lightening of the vibrations of the the vessel, really. Mm -hmm. And how did yeah. they help? What did they do to you or with you or whatever to, to help? I had a lot of healings done on me. Uh, a lot of visions and a lot of uh, healings where these beings from other spheres, like not from the gross plane, came and helped and uh, did literal healings on me. Yeah. So it was very real. It was as real as, you know, real. <laughs> real as this gross plane is real. Mm -hmm. the, this, this subtle sphere was very real, yeah. yeah. Do you still perceive it or did that go away with the self-realization? With the bubbling of the self, I'm self-sufficient, you know, like uh, I actually did stop before the awakening with Muji. I did get the intuition to stop. The, it is very alluring. There are many adventures on the subtle spheres. It was a part of my journey, but... I got a, a guidance to stop, so I did stop, and pretty soon after that I had the awakening with Muji. So I wouldn't sort of suggest run around looking for spiritual beings or other planes, but 
I felt it was in a very strong instrument and work on me. Yeah. Well, you hadn't also, really been looking for it yourself, had you? I mean, it just. I hadn't been looking. It was just happening. It, it was just happening. Yeah, yeah, it just happened, and it it was very wonderful and very helpful, and it also helped to like ply, like lift apart this density of the gross identification mm -hmm. because the world was so much more. Yeah. Okay, so it's sort of... In other words, the world was so much more than you were perceiving it to be due to the sort of the binding influence of the, gro of the identification to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So I, th I sort of feel like it was also just an instrument in lifting enlightening the identification a bit yeah yeah when you were in the phase where you were perceiving these guides did you perceive everyone's guides or just your own i perceived my own only my well i actually spent a lot of time in solitude here so, so there wasn't a lot of people. i didn't sing a lot of people <laughs> i i i did go singing chanting to the red temple in my local town every every saturday but not a lot of uh, mixing with people at the time, mm -hmm. yeah. So it wasn't yeah. like you saw guides around everyone you encountered, it was more like just no. something you yourself were dealing with? When I'd come into the stillness of the, uh, of the cave or into, into nature, I would, I would sense it then. But I was also working in uh, making coffee in a cafe. And at times like that, sometimes... Um, people would come through that had passed and want to pass a message on, but I, I didn't see other people's guides. Yeah. I see. Yeah. yeah. Was that a significant thing at all, uh, you know, people wanting to pass messages through you to some loved one, or was that just sort of a little side thing that happened? Just something that comes, and it's, it, that still happens occasionally, and if I feel okay about it, I'll, I'll pass it on. Yeah. There's some people uh, make whole careers of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it sort of doesn't interest me to chase this up, but if it's helpful, then I just pass that on, yeah. Okay. Let's see here. There's a nice little phrase I liked, something I lifted from your book. The wind can either blow on and through you with ease, or you can brace yourself against it and fight it. Life is also like that. Let me flow through you. Surrender. Who said that? God. Uh -huh. this <laughs> something that came to you. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of... Um, why I wrote that writing is because uh, I'd come in and tell my husband sometimes when he was visiting... Um, something that I'd heard and he'd say you should get this stuff down some of this stuff is really good and and the stuff that is good is the dictation basically yeah yeah things yeah. just come to you like that yeah were you sort of fighting it for a while uh, you know blowing against the wind so to speak as a person always yeah yeah <laughs> and always fighting everything yeah uh. <laughs> And then you just uh, surrendered by degrees. By degrees, yeah. 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 I think that's what happens with most of us. It's like, you know, we don't even realize the extent to which we're trying to hold the reins. And, uh, you know, but then through su successive degrees of release, we, we surrender more and more. And 
allow something larger to, to hold them. Yeah, yeah. There's a saying in the Vedas someplace, Brahman is the charioteer. And uh, Brahman would mean the wholeness, the totality, God. And, you know, that's really holding the reins of the, the chariot of our life. <clears throat> but or, ordinarily, pre-enlightenment at least, you know, we're, we're, we think we're holding them. Yeah. So, um, you had experiences even of sort of historical and mythical figures uh, during this whole thing. Even Saint, you had kind of had some kind of cognition from Saint Francis and, and so on. Um, I'm just reading little snippets here from your book. Let's let's skip ahead to this thing of dagger removals. I thought that was kind mm -hmm. of interesting. And, and again, mm -hmm. feel free, if there's anything that comes into your mind that I'm not asking about, go ahead and talk mm -hmm. about it. I'm just picking yeah. and choosing here. So, talk about dagger removals. I won't begin to describe it, because you can do it better. Well, it seems like a long time ago, and I see... I remember being in the cave at night and being told to like go in and down and just find, find the wounds, find the wounds that the person's carrying. And with the, with the wounding, you know, the noise, the stories, uh, the entrapment, I feel was really tight like that, you know. So these guides came and started to perform these fantastic ceremonies of smoking and pulling out wounds so identifying the wound and beings from the subtle realm would come and perform the the removals hmm. yeah. so if someone had been in the room with you and had been watching you they would have just seen you lying on the bed and nothing unusual going on but with <laughs> with the subtle perception yeah. There, there were beings and they were actually using some kind of you know smoke or sage or something and and performing a kind of a subtle surgery on you in a way yeah it was subtle surgery yeah I, my husband was in bed once beside me just sleeping and a whole this whole thing was going on enactments going on yeah yeah and you know it, it was very real yeah so just for the sake of interest and I think it might be instructive talk about some of the different daggers that were removed and what they signified. Okay, I can't even remember. Rick, can you prompt me? Isn't it terrible? Oh, well, I didn't write it all down, but as I recall there were about at least 4 of them and they were they were kind of stuck in various parts of your body and each one represented a particular trauma. Yes, that yes, had been okay. held for, you know, who knows how long. And withdrawing those daggers was in itself a little bit of a delicate operation. And when yeah. they withdrew, there was actually some subtle bleeding or, or emission of some kind of substance okay. from your yep. body yep. and, and yep. so on. Okay. Remembering now. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, I can remember one. Um, and, you know, just quite pathetic little traumas, some of them, uh, but, you know, trauma is any time the system's overwhelmed. That's the, mm -hmm. the um, definition of trauma. So uh, I can remember my brother dying 
And um, at the time, it felt, it may sound bizarre, but totally right. He died. He left the body. It was a very violent death. He died in a car accident. I'm going off the track now. So that was stored as a trauma in my in my being and I was attended by a whole lot of beings. And to tell you the truth, Rick, now I can't even remember. Like I'd have to you'd have to read the story to uh-huh. to recreate the scene for me. But you know, each each wound was sort of pulled out. It was in the in this stage it was in the form of a dagger and it was pulled out and just a great release and and a lightness of being after every every little wounding and trauma was yeah. removed. Huh. So yeah, in, in the life of the person sort of I felt it was great work because stripping layers, you know, wounds, stories that you carry, you know? Yeah. And make this life sort of heavy and bound. Yeah, I mean, you said an interesting thing there, which was that there were certain experiences which were overshadowing, I I don't think you used that word, but that they left deep impressions. And that's that's what vasanas are, that's what these... Um, their impressions caused by any experience which kind of overloads the the sensory apparatus or overloads our emotional apparatus or whatever but it it sort of leaves an imprint and those imprints can be very sticky and we don't know how many of them there actually may be but there could be piles and piles of them all sort of stuck Mm -hmm. stuck and keeping Mm -hmm. our our identity bound Mm -hmm. and constricted and they have to be removed. And I think you're a much more visual person than, than most people are. So, mm-hmm. you know, where with you, you'd be perceiving, you know, guides and daggers getting removed and all that stuff. The average person wouldn't necessarily experience all that stuff, but they might experience other symptoms like physical pains or physical movements or, you know, yeah. some, some sort of manifestation as the deep impression starts to get itself worked out. Yeah, definitely. I actually had one thing that was reminiscent of your kind of experience. I was, um, this, it sort of happened during my sleep, but I was ushered into this room and, and asked to lie down on a pallet on my stomach and hold on to some handles. And some sort of being came and worked me over with like something up, like a trident or something up and down my spine. And it was mm-hmm. absolutely excruciating. But I, I kind of realized that something really good was happening, and I held on for dear life. And then, you know, making a long story short, I kind of rose up out of it into waking state, out of this really deep thing, with this with this feeling of vast relief and release, mm-hmm. and feeling like I had mm-hmm. been bound by steel bands or something that had finally mm-hmm. been broken. It was this huge thing. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Irene passed me a note. She says, I hear you talking a lot. <laughs> I, I am talking a lot, but, but you're not a blabbermouth, so I have to kind of keep, keep priming the pump here. <laughs> but I don't know why I told the story. I think I've told it once or twice before on this show, but it, it gives an indication that maybe things like that are happening to people that they don't 
you know, that they wouldn't ordinarily know about, and they just experience mm-hmm. some super surface symptoms, but there's some kind of deeper mechanics going on that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so lots of clearing, lots of clearing, uh, and uh, with the clearing then the stories leave, and the more stories that left, the more you can just be here. Yeah, there was this thing where you had like a, a splitting headache, really bad. Then finally the headache burst through the crown of your head and you got this message saying, your body is the building and now on top you have a vessel. <laughs> that was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I did have uh, some very painful, dramatic sort of openings. And they were sort of like on a metaphysical level but at the same time they were physical and, and a lot were very painful and one was an incredible headache, incredible headache where I thought, oh, should I ring the ambulance? And I thought, I oh, no, I can't, I'm in too much pain, I can't, I think, I, I think I'm just going to die. So I, I sort of ran out to the front of the, the cave and uh, sort of threw myself down in the dirt and was just rolling and holding my head, screaming to God, you know, and God just said, let go, let go, and I just felt like this burst, incredible pain burst through the top of my head, and uh, it was like a birth of some sort, yeah, so there was lots of those sort of faculty openings, and a lot of them were quite painful, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant when I used the word purgatory before. I mean, purgatory is not, okay. like, it's not like an eternal hell. It's a, it's a place where people supposedly go and kind of, you know, get all their sort of sins wrung ra- out of them. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then they can go to heaven afterwards, according to the mythology. But um, Maybe that was it. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a period. Of, but, you know, it wasn't necessarily a bed of roses. I mean, there was just all this really intense stuff. That it, it, was, it was intense, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was really intense, and it was fantastic, and intense, and um, painful, and quite bizarre, quite bizarre. And it did end in the third year in absolute illness, in the bed, finished. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I uh, actually got chronic fatigue in the end. It was almost like maybe this was all too much, all these opening of faculties, and I ended up with chronic fatigue and severe pain in this face, Mm. incredible pain in my face uh, that just wouldn't go away. And I spent months and months just laying in bed, laying in bed, and uh, I sort of had this vision of my body all chopped up and dismembered in a rubbish bin at the end of the bed and it sat like that for months Mm. and I just got guided just surrender surrender so it was almost like this experience was like some sort of prototype of experience for the for the next awakening sort of because I did come up out of all that rebuilt (laughs) still as person though less person but still person was there until the Muji thing yeah Yeah. but I you know 
it's there are precedents for this. I mean, I believe Saint Francis went, you know, nearly died and was extremely sick, and when he came out of it, he was Saint Francis. <laughs> or okay. you know, there was a big transformation. Yeah. There, there are a lot of other stories like that too, where people just really go through the ringer, and uh, yeah, yeah. So we keep coming back to this point, but I, I think it's. It's significant, and I, I don't think everybody takes it on as intensely and as quickly as you did. It may not have seemed quick to you, but um, you know, some people can spend decades just working through this stuff more slowly, and it never reaches a sort of a critical point. But others, it can be very intense. I, again, uh, this, you know, reading about Ramana recently, he, he said that he could, could enlighten people if he wanted to, just like that, but it would kill most people. And, mm. you know, so there, there are very few people that he would, uh, often, in a few instances, he actually sort of enlightened people as they were dying, because they were dying anyway. So if, mm. if he killed them, <laughs> it wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't matter. <laughs> but but the, the transformation can be so radical for the body that it can be more than you can handle. And so it has to be parceled out sometimes in smaller increments. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I could see that, yeah. Yeah. So what is this thing you're doing now? Uh, I'm linking to it from, from the BatGap website, some transformational release okay. something. Yeah, it's called TRE, mm -hmm. and it's Trauma and Tension Release. Trauma and, and Tension Release. Yeah. A man called David Baselli, an American man, mm -hmm. who works in the field of trauma recovery, he devised this technique. And uh, it's basically tapping into our body's innate release mechanism which is tremoring. And uh, we all have this mechanism in us as mammals. Tremoring, and meaning moving, yeah, shaking. It's a, it's a shaking, yeah. You, you've probably seen, Rick, your dog shaking in a thunderstorm. Sure. Yeah, they get scared. Yeah, yeah well, we see that. Uh, we've sort of interpreted that merely as fear. Mm -hmm. But in fact, um, David Baselli has realized that it's the release of fear. Mm -hmm. So it's a release of the charge that's been built up mm. and the muscles contraction that we go into when we're, when, when we're in fear. Mm -hmm. So it's like shaking out all that muscle contraction mm. and uh, balancing the nervous system. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, after my um, great illness and coming out of illness and being rebuilt, I didn't have chronic fatigue anymore, but I still had incredible pain in my face. I had, and I thought it was oh, maybe my teeth, so I just kept getting teeth pulled out. And my dentist like, they're all fine, they're fine, the teeth are fine. I'm like, no, I'm in such pain, I don't care. I want the teeth, teeth pulled out. So I did get a whole load of teeth pulled out and I still had pain. So, <laughs> so uh, my sister introduced me to TRE and uh, because I'd been doing shamanic work and often on the table, people's bodies will shake in a certain area and release. And I've just intuitively felt that's a release, you know, the body's releasing. So when she mentioned this uh, shaking and TRE, I thought, yeah, great, I'll have to look into it. So I went along to a three-day workshop and I came out and my whole face contraction unwound. So uh, the pain just gone. 
Right? Gone. With, yeah, yeah. But you wish you hadn't had those teeth pulled out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got false ones now in there so I can chew and smile yeah. without scaring people. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there you go. But that too, losing teeth, fantastic for tearing off more shreds of who you thought you were. So I'm grateful for even the teeth going. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think I'm a teeth, but I kind of prefer to hang on to them if possible. <laughs> so, yeah, so I've trained uh, in TRE and do the shamanic work, but I feel that this, I know Muji says, and I totally believe it, and just listen to Muji or Baba, and it, it is there. But my experience was clearing out and cleaning out the trauma. And, and so, yeah, I do, I do do that work now. What did you just say? It is there? What did you mean by that just then? I don't know. What did I say? You really? said Muji and Baba and, and saying, oh, saying it just, is there? Like the self is there. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's just there. And it is. And it is. But my experience was I, I, I cleaned out some trauma. Yeah. I think that's everybody's experience. You know, Isn't it? the self is there for everyone, but yeah. do they experience it? You know, the, no. for, yeah. for the most part, no. You know, and there's a saying in the Gita that one sees the self in all beings and all beings in the self. So in an elephant, in a dog, in, a, in people, in all, it's all the same self, but just the fact that it is, I mean, it's the same self in Adolf Hitler and all kinds of nasty people, but yeah. that doesn't really help any in terms of I mean, in terms of if we just brush it off that oh it's all the same self therefore everybody's an ultimately enlightened there's a big difference yeah. between that and actually embodying it you know yeah and clearing yeah. clearing away all the crud that would make us uh, a, a genocidal person or yeah. any of the even minor even minor infractions or whatever yeah. yeah so I yeah I do feel that in my experience the shamanic work that the guides and, and the subtle beings did on me and then followed by uh, a few years now of TRE practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, So since you live out in the middle of nowhere and you hardly ever see anybody, um, how can yeah. you really do TRE practice with anyone? Good point. <laughs> or you just do it on yourself? <laughs> I do do it on myself, but people come. They come, but yeah, obviously my audience is limited in... Uh, in customers in a small town, yeah. but um, uh, I can work in the. I can drive to the town and work there also. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think I'm thinking of. I live in such a beautiful place mm -hmm. that I'm thinking of maybe having it as a retreat place for people to come and get the joy of working, um, you know, in nature and perhaps you know, some trauma release and tension and stress release and, and growth into well just having the chance to be here and and like I was allowed to be here. Just seeing if any questions have come in. You and I talked the other day about how there's no end of stuff we could talk about in an interview like this. We have to sort of take a snapshot and give people a taste. And is there anything that you feel is has been significant for you, is significant now, and so on, that um, you know you really want to have the opportunity to express that you'd like people to hear? 
I suppose I can only share what helped me because everyone's path is so different. But for me, it was surrender to the Guru. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And reflecting myself in nature and feeling myself as that perfection of nature. So the combination for me was Guru, solitude, devotion, lots of devotion. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually just listening to a talk today by a woman named Joy Sharp, whom I interviewed some quite a few years ago, talking about devotion and surrender. And she was talking about how, in some non-dual circles, those those ideas are kind of put down. You know, people feel like, well, it's dualistic or it's emotional and so on. Um, and she was giving some pretty good counter arguments to that to that idea. I wonder if you if you would care to address that. Um, you know, how you feel devotion and surrender are significant and perhaps don't contradict the, you know, the principles of non-duality. Mm. Just the love is there for that perfect being and yet at the same time I feel that perfect being coming out through here. Yeah. And coming out through here. So in a way there's no separation. And yet I can enjoy their beauty and adore them at the same time. That's a little bit paradoxical. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's oneness and, and yet there's a flow of devotion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the more I adore Baba and Muji and nature, the more the bubbling flows out of the self. Yeah. Yeah. Which is enjoyable, I would guess. Yeah. Blissful. Blissful. Yeah. Yeah. Shankara said Shankara was a, one of the founders of non-duality, but he said that the that the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. And uh, I, to me, that phrase implies that there's an intrinsic beauty in devotion, sweetness in devotion. That is experience one would want to have, even a master of non-duality like Shankara. And that he he kind of, you know, sets up dualistic conditions so as to create some sort of flow, like you were just describing, mm. to to have the bliss, mm. to have the bliss bubble. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Would well, I've seen Baba pray, and and Muji pray sure. to, yeah, to it, Papaji. Yeah. It's actually quite a devotional scene around Muji, from what I'm. Told. It is, yeah. 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 Almost oh. a little bit over the top. <laughs> I, I've never been, I've only ever seen Muji on the net. But uh, whenever I see all the beings, like in his presence, they look so clear and very light and beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So do you have a kind of a sense of, I mean, it's only been a year, you said, since this awakening. And I'm sure that, you know, if we were to talk a year, five years, ten years from now, it would have... It will have matured and deepened and whatever you know, quite a bit. Do you have a, Do you have a sense of where that's heading, or you know, kind of a sense of what the horizon looks like, as it were? I don't know. I don't know, but I I realized coming down and integrating a bit. I I was so sort of. I feel like I was so far gone and and way out 
that people would start talking from their person and I was inappropriately laughing, you know, mm. thinking, uh, this was quite recent, you know, thinking, oh, they think they're their person, you know, and, and, and I would laugh and it was inappropriate. And uh, then I had nights and nights of um, visions, of uh, really violent visions uh, of humanity, you know, rape, torture, just humanity's violence and uh and then a few nights after that i experienced uh, everything the elements mountains the the creatures the people all the hopes and and dreams and and just the great beauty of the play and it sort of brought me in and down and a bit more integrated and more functional uh, so that's been the change so far. And as Barbara says, the shock when you see the self is so great, but it's just the beginning, you know. <laughs> it's the beginning of the involution. So, yeah, I don't know, Rick, but, yeah. Well, that was a good, that was a good answer. And it's, it's interesting that he referred to it as the beginning because some people would think of it as the end. But I, I suppose... I know, may, I may have misquoted him, but... I read that late the other evening, and it was like it's such a shock, but it's yeah, not the end. So yeah, yeah. I'm not sure there is an end, personally. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's it's uh, perhaps wise to have that attitude. I know a number of teachers whom I respect, Adyashanti, Ama, and, and others have, have have said it's and the. Even in Zen, there's that saying, beginner's mind. They've said it's always good to have the attitude of a beginner because it's it's so easy. I've heard Adyashanti give whole talks about this to have an experience that seems so complete and so profound mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. you think that must be it. You know, I couldn't yeah. imagine anything more than this. And yeah. you can kind of get stuck there if, unless you yeah. have this yeah. attitude of kind of innocent willingness mm -hmm. to be open to... Yeah. I, I, you just you just prompted a, a thought. I'm just sort of following promptings in life, but I did get the prompting that you're wallowing a bit in the bliss. You know, you're wallowing in the bliss. Mm -hmm. I got that intuition recently. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and then I got those visions. Mm -hmm. Like I got the intuition. You're wallowing a bit in the bliss here. You know, you've been staring at the concrete floor for eight months, not doing a lot. And at the time, I felt like. There's nothing to do, like, I have nothing to do, I don't want to be anything, I don't want to do anything, and that was so strong. And I spoke to Muji on the net about that, and he said, yeah, you feel like that, but there will be doing. And uh, there has been doing more recently, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm back into to working, and I feel more functional. But there's the underlying full empty bliss happening there so yeah you know they say that there are i think five sheaths they're called koshas and I, I can't name them all but um they get more and more subtle maybe the body is the grossest one and then they get more and more subtle and the subtlest one is said to be anandamaya kosha which is the bliss sheath so even even bliss by that model is said to be a, a sheath, and by sheath mm -hmm. it means it's something that 
constrains us in some way. Yeah. And um, it has to go. It has to go. Has to be broken through. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I got that intuition quite strongly. Like you're wallowing. <laughs> Slap. Yeah. 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 Snap out. Of it. <laughs> That's very barber, you know. Chunk. Yeah. Get on. <laughs> Chop wood. Carry water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. So um, this has been sweet. I think we've covered a, a nice bunch of stuff. People haven't sent in a lot of questions, although been, there have been about 100 people watching most of the time. Is there uh, any final words you'd like to say to people about anything? Uh, I suppose I would uh, like to say, talk about, T, like I've spoken about TRE, but I would say if people are interested in, take it up as a practice, mm -hmm. because uh, it calms your physiology down and because we are in the body, mm -hmm. we're in this human condition and uh, we can get stuck in states that are turned on, fight and flight, freeze, disassociation, flop and by regulating the organism with the TRE we can come to a really calm mind and come into the present state. Mm. David Baselli doesn't say, you know, anything about enlightenment. This is just my experience. I, it certainly makes you a, a more easy to live with person. <laughs> you, you respond as opposed to um, react, so you're less reactive. Um, it's just a fantastic uh, practice for the hu human physiology, yeah. Do you have to learn it from a person directly or can you learn it off a website or what? You can uh, get a DVD, but it is really great to learn off a person, and it is a self-healing technique, so you just learn, and once you can self-regulate, you can go away for life and practice it. Are there teachers of it all over the world? There are teachers everywhere in the world, yeah. Okay, and I'd yeah. link to you, I'll link to your website about that, but then I imagine, well, you, you let me know if you want me to link to anything different, but I'll just link to that, and people can go there and learn more about it. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, uh, well, go ahead. there's lots of teachers. Uh, you just get on the global website and TRE website, and there's lots of teachers. I, I think it's a fantastic practice. Okay. Do you have any inclination to like talk to people around the world? Sometimes when people I do these interviews, people like to connect over Skype, and some teach, some people I interview charge for that. Some do it for free. But you know, do you have time and inclination to do that, or not so much? I'm not really feeling that, mm -hmm. Rick, yeah, I'm not really feeling that. I will have this place for maybe like retreat at some stage where people can come and be in nature and just uh, have the enjoyment. I feel particularly women would like to go and, and be in nature but don't feel safe to go camping in the bush. Mm -hmm. So this little 17 acres with trees and mountain, I will work towards setting up a retreat for people, not just women, but Although you could, anyone. Have, you could have women's retreats exclusively yeah. sometimes. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sort of looking to that as part of the work, but I don't know, yeah. Yeah, see how it goes. Yeah, see how it goes, yeah. Okay, well great. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and to the Bat Gap listeners. It's been a nice settling conversation. I've talked a little bit more than usual, but I feel very settled talking to you, so I'm not like um, on coffee or anything. <laughs> Just uh, 
you know, it's, you're enjoyable to talk to. So let me just make a few concluding remarks. I've, I've been talking with Tree Wiseblood. Originally, Michelle was your name, Michelle something. And uh, this book that I read that uh, I found rather fascinating, is it in print? Is it downloadable off your website? No, I haven't, even, I haven't even edited it. I just sort of wrote it down. It's not published. Okay, yet. so it's not even available yeah. at this point. No, okay. no. But do you have any intention of publishing it ever or no? Oh, uh, if there was an interest, yeah. Right. If there was an interest, yeah. Can people contact you through your website? Yes. All right. So if they're interested in the book, maybe you, they could send you an email and you could let yeah. them know if and when you make it more publicly available. Sure. Yeah, that would be yeah. handy. It was an interesting book, far out. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. I like reading things that kind of stretch my <laughs> assumptions about the way the world works. Yeah. Well, it certainly stretched mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. You've been on quite a ride. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, thanks. Just a couple of concluding remarks. Uh, as people watching this mostly know, this is an ongoing series. There's a new one every week. To be notified of new ones every week, um, either subscribe on YouTube or sign up to be notified by email on the BatGap website, or both. This is also exists as an audio podcast if you like to listen to things while you're commuting or whatever. Donate button, as I mentioned earlier and a bunch of other things. If you poke around in the, in the menus on, on batgap.com, you'll, you'll find some things that you may find of interest, including, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, all the previous interviews categorized and alphabetized and every which way. So thanks for listening or watching, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Tree. <laughs>